This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. And as I mentioned last week, we are on hiatus, as we say in the business. But while Corey and I are busy recording interviews for next season, we're bringing you other great shows from across the Potiverse. This week, Science Rules presents one of my favorites, I'm serious, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. It's a weekly show that discusses the latest science news, critical thinking, bad science, conspiracies, and controversies. We like to say it's your escape to reality. The hosts often take on timely topics, so we thought it best to bring you their most recent episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, be sure to follow them wherever you listen to Science Rules. As always, you can send us your questions and ideas for the next season of Science Rules. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785. Fill out our form at AskBillNye.com or check me out on all the social media. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. So without further ado, Science Rules presents The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Turn it up loud. You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 12th, 2021, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Uh, Evan is away this week. He's uh, still working on Texas because we got that extension, but he'll be back next week. With a little bit of an update from last week. We were talking about the Chinese rocket that was out of control. That was coming back. <laughs> yeah. And they had no idea. It was basically an uncontrolled re-entry, which is not a good thing. And But the it finally came down late Saturday night, I believe, last week. So... Uh, it, it crashed somewhere in the Indian Ocean. So fortunately, nobody was hurt. Didn't land on any villagers or anything. But I just got lucky. But we said like 75% is going to hit the water. Yeah, nobody got killed and it went into the ocean. Yeah. NASA re- rebuked them, um, you know, saying that this is not, you know, how the, yeah. how you handle this. You need a plan. Uh, you know, you got to spend the extra little bit of money here to, to give it a controlled reentry because worst case scenarios are bad. I mean, imagine this landing in Manhattan. I mean, imagine yeah. that. So you can't just depend on the roll of the dice. Um, and uh, so they, so NASA's, you know, kind of, you know, had some words. Um, but it, and this was the second time that this happened. And um, 
And I don't, I don't remember make anyone making a big deal of it the first time. I, I think I just I missed that one. I'm not sure how much of a big deal it was, but I consider this, you know, not a trivial thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're they're building a, a space station, and that's and that's wonderful. But man, come on! And, and now they're saying that China's blaming the U.S. for hyping fears, um, and stuff. And uh, you know, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't probable, but it doesn't matter because worst case scenarios are were, are not were not you know amazingly unlikely and they could have been devastating people could have died yeah if you accidentally discharge a weapon and it mi- happens to miss everybody it doesn't mean it was okay or that you weren't yeah you still usually get tried for that so but you know it doesn't sound like they have any intention of not doing it again yeah that's why we we need some type of international rules that everybody just has to follow you know and i don't know how to how we would achieve that because if a country doesn't want to do it then you know the only way to pressure them to do it would be with sanctions and all sorts of the you know all sorts of political maneuvers it's really too bad you know because i was hoping that china was going to have a much better response yeah they're saying that they that beijing was being treated unfairly and they they pointed to uh the reaction to debris from a rocket launched by u.s aerospace company spacex that fell to earth in uh the state of washington or yeah on the oregon coast in march um, I wasn't aware of that, so I, I really can't comment on that because I, I don't know too many details. I mean, was it a? Is this really an apples to apples comparison? Where I mean, was it really an uncontrolled, kind of uh, unplanned? Uh, not unplanned, but it was, was this as uncontrolled and intended as a Chinese rocket? I, I don't know. Jay, I mean, sometimes, sometimes you do everything right and bad stuff still happens. Sure, and that's just bad luck. Sometimes you're negligent. And bad yeah. stuff happens, yeah. or you're negligent and you skate by by luck. The outcome isn't the ultimate test. What the ultimate test is: were you were you going by the rules? Were you were you being responsible, or were you being negligent? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it's the reason we've the changed test. our wording when we talk about public health. People don't use the term anymore. You'll notice this if you open your ears. People don't use the term car accident anymore because it implies that most crashes yeah. on the road are accidental, but unfortunately, most of them are negligence. Mm-hmm. Most yeah. of them could have been prevented, and so we right. actually use the term "automobile crash" now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for that same yeah, reason. That's a good idea, right? Or it's like in medicine, like you malpractice is not there was a bad outcome; it was you were practicing substandard care, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, because people are going to die. You know, nature yeah. is strong, but the hope is that you right. do everything you can. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I mean, I do think that, uh, well, it's good that NASA said what they said, but there there needs to be international standards. You know, countries can't just start sending rockets up with no plan on where they're going to come down. It's just not going to play with what we have going on in the future. I mean, there's plenty of countries that are putting rockets out into space. And, you know, if China's going to be putting up a space station, that means they're a major player. And they just simply have to comply. You know, mm-hmm. they can't be using these incre- incredibly crappy uh, cutting corners to save money or just not caring at all. You know, they're figuring statistically it's not going to hit them. You know, it's just not not the way moving forward. This is not the way to conduct themselves as a nation that's going to be going out into outer space frequently. So all let's right. get right to our news items because we have a great interview coming up later with Julia Galliff about her new book. Uh, and we want to uh, leave enough time for that. So, Jay, you're going to start off by telling us that about a recent study looking at uh, brain implants to for brain machine interface. We've been talking about this. This is a this is a fairly significant uh, advance. Really? Ooh, tell me about it. Yeah, you know, it's worth worth mentioning. 
Well, yeah, let's go over what, what is a brain-computer interface, or BCI. This is a device that enables direct communication between a brain, right? It's like, like we say, a human brain, and an external device, a computer of some, time, of some type. This is done by the use of a brain activity only, right? So we're not talking about an fMRI or whatever. This is actually being able to detect brain activity, and that brain activity gets translated in a computer, and then they can do something with that. Um, and they they measure brain activity usually with what, Stephen? Electroencephalography? An EEG, <laughs> electroencephalogram? Yeah. Yes. There's a graphy. <laughs> yeah, that's, what I, that's, that's, more, that's what I was reading. More fun it's, the way you say it. It's because yeah, it's course. electroencephalography. Like, that's the actual action of doing it. Yes. That's but the it's action an electroencephalogram. That's the machine that does it. Yeah. What do you call the person that operates the machine? Depends. Like and Frank? EEG what do you call yeah, Frank. <laughs> Encephalo- Nancy, I don't know. Encephalographalist. <laughs> so, that, I love that, Bob. <laughs> Karen, that goes on your list of words. <laughs> All right, so research on BCI, right? We're going to call this BCI, uh, started in the 1970s. And it's actually made, as Steve said, we've made some interesting and significant progress recently. So let me just give you a little bit more background. So pretty much anything that a human does from moving their body to talking to eating and to thinking um, – this produces specific patterns of electrical activity in your brain. And I'm sure that everybody's is different. You know, there, there might be some commonality between them, but, but it, you know, it's like a fingerprint. It's different. The electrical activity has recognizable patterns though, because they're repeated. Um, and the, the, um, BCI machine can detect and interpret those electrical signals. And that, that at its core, that's it. Now, of course, I'm, oversimplifying it, but I want to give you an idea of what I'm about to talk about. So the research that I, I'm going to discuss today was created at Stanford University. So the test subject is a 65-year-old man who became paralyzed from the neck down back in 2007. So in 2016, researchers implanted two grids, each with 100 tiny electrodes on the surface of his brain. Um, and I know that sounds kind of horrific, but you know, this is what it, this is what it would take to get that type of reading, you know, to get that accurate type of reading. We don't have the ability to do it that well outside of the skull yet. So unfortunately, they have to crack your skull open to put these electrodes in there. They put these specific banks of electrodes specifically where this man's brain controls his arm and hands. And the electrodes sense, like I said, electrical activity, and that information is then translated in a computer using artificial intelligence. And then what they had him do was they had him imagine that he was writing letter, letters with one of his hands. Now, of course, he can't move his hands because he's paralyzed, but he's just imagining this. The researchers were able to distinguish the different neural patterns that correlated wow. to each letter the man thought of. Mm. Remarkable. They were then able to translate that into text on a computer screen. And now in in one minute, the test subject was able to write out 15 words consisting of 90 characters. This is incredible and it's significant because people that are in his age group, you know, the 65-year age range, can type on a cell phone, like while texting, about 115 characters per minute. So that's really – it's only 25, 25 letters more, characters more than the patient who, who they were testing this on, which means that, that – he was typing at speed, pretty much. So a remarkable thing also about this achievement was that the patient was not able to use his hands for 14 years. 
and the pathways that control his arm and his hands, you know, they're, they're still there and they were still functioning. Because when he thought about moving his hand, his brain lit up correctly, right? So, so apparently, you know, with the amount of atrophy that took place, um, it wasn't enough to make it so they couldn't read it, which is fantastic because, you know, there's a lot of people around the world that are, that are paralyzed or have other, other things going on that limit their mobility. So this is a, a real significant leap in the technology because of, of the clarity that they can get from the signal that they're getting from his brain. What was the accuracy? Um, how accurate were they? So they said that the the at the raw accuracy was ninety four point one percent, but if you if they just added autocorrect, it was ninety nine percent accurate. Wow! Yeah, just for the general purpose, autocorrect. Yeah, ninety nine percent. That's pretty good. right out of the gate. Yeah, damn. yeah. So we now know that fine motor trajectories. You might want to look that up. Can successfully be detected and decoded from neocortical activity. So basically, what they're saying here is that they can they can pick up fine motor movements in the brain. Your brain is telling a limb to do something. They can pick that up and they can decode it. So the researchers are confident that this will work on other people. You know, there, there really is no reason for them to think otherwise. Uh, now they're planning to test this system on a person who cannot move at all. Like, you know, that, are, that is locked in. They can't move their body, can't, can't speak, um, which would be incredible for that person if you think about it. All of a sudden, that person will be able to communicate. Well, I shouldn't say all of a sudden because there's quite a bit that they have to do to prepare the patient. But, you know, this is incredibly early in this technology. Like I said, millions of people around the world, you know, are disabled and have have a reason to want to use machines like this. The researchers are also interested in decoding speech, and which I thought was incredible because speech is way more complicated. Um, it's harder to decode. The accuracy will be much more difficult to get to a reasonable level. And also the size of the spoken vocabulary and how fast people speak is a factor. But, you know, again... It's. I, I still think it's on the spectrum of, of doable here with what they were able to achieve with this, pre, this existing experiment. The researchers hope that the technology will also be available to the public within years and not decades, which is amazing. You know, we're not hearing 5 to 10 or 10 to 20. We're hearing, you know, you know, maybe a handful of years before they could start rolling this out to certain people. And outside of helping people who are sick, I have to just throw this in here at the end. You know, this technology, this is really like a science fiction technology coming yeah. true. Not that I want this to happen right away, but eventually they might be able to come up with hopefully even non-invasive invasive ways to do this. You know, imagine thinking and you being able to control a computer. You know, you can go into a very good or very bad place, you know, speculating about that. But man, is that powerful. Yeah, just hook, hook, your, hook yourself up to uh, robot hands and you can think about signing your name. And the robot hands would do it. Yeah, so a couple of things here just to put it into perspective. This is great, but they're they're specifically trying to look for things that are going to be easy to do, right? One thing to note is that this is intracortical electrodes, not scalp surface or external electrodes. It's touching the brain. Yeah, so that gives the greatest fidelity, you know, and yeah. discrimination. Uh, it's always a trade-off between, as you say, Jay, invasiveness versus the quality of the information you're getting. So, so here they're doing like a maximally invasive procedure in order to get the best quality possible. Uh, that that still, you know, that that has higher risks, of course. You know, the the longevity of the electrodes is it, you know maybe fairly short. A couple of years or something like that. Also, surgery and infection, you know, it's always bad 
to cut into someone for any reason. Yeah, although, you know, we do that routinely now, cutting into the brain. It's not as big a deal as it, it sounds like. But yes, it's 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 a risk and there's no zero risk. That's one thing to take into consideration. So they're you know giving themselves the best chance of success by using a you know an invasive procedure for the electrodes. We 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 we've talked you know before several times about like what the other options are. Um, you know, squishy electrodes, intra, intravascular electrodes get close to the brain, but not having to, you know, cut through anything. So that, you know, be interesting to see if we could like reproduce this with, uh, with any of those less invasive options. The other thing is, so what they're interpreting here is the motor cortex, which is, even though you think, oh, it's language, it's writing, it's letters, it's, but it's interpreting the movements. And the motor cortex is one, it's a good thing to go after because there's somatotopic mapping. In other words, like the physical layout of the, of the motor cortex correlates with the parts of the body. You know, there's, there's a, a little there's, homunculus. Yeah, there's a yeah. homunculus map. Yeah. There's no homunculus in the language cortex, right? Interpreting the language cortex is going to be far more difficult than interpreting mm-hmm. the motor cortex. So by having the subject imagine that they're writing letters is brilliant because that just puts the language into the motor cortex Mm -hmm. where it could be much more easily deciphered. They also are trying to figure out what kinds of movements are easier to decipher. And they said that, you know, this study and and, um, theoretical considerations uh, explain why this type of temporally complex movements might be easier to interpret for, you know, the software to interpret. The other thing is there's only 24 letters. So whenever you have a finite number of options, uh, that also makes it much easier on the computer. It just has to pick the best match of the 24 and not an open-ended match of millions of possible targets. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but none of that matters. The end result is this is a method you know, getting people to imagine moving in order to imagine writing. It's a, it's a way of communicating faster than any other BCI methods previously tried. So, and that's the key. And you're right, Jay, like this would be, this would be a life changer for somebody who's locked in, mm-hmm. who could now communicate at, uh, you know, 90 characters a minute or 15 words a minute. That's huge. Is this a huge improvement, though, Steve, over the studies that we've seen? I mean, I remember 10 years ago reporting on studies with direct brain um, electrodes with, you know, primates who are playing video games. So the control isn't better. It's just the communication's faster Mm -hmm. because of the method they chose. Right. Yeah. So uh, like like a previous method was using your brain to control the cursor on a computer screen and then moving the cursor to different letters. That's another method entirely, and that works, but it's a lot slower than this. Mm-hmm. So th- this was just a good way to approach this problem, and, and it did result in faster communication fr- from thought, you know? Yeah. I, again, I think the limiting factor is, is largely the technology. It's the electrodes. We, we need to get to the point where we have safer, less invasive, or, or just more detailed electrodes. I think you know, one of the things that we talked about not too long ago was the micro wires like mm-hmm. the the yeah. connections made through like hundreds of teeny tiny very thin wires that actually go thin into and like the flexible brain. and yeah. they're yeah they have to be flexible and the and you know so that technology is developing and you know the, you know if we could get like really high resolution good br- stable brain connections the software can handle it right the software i think is ahead of the game here they use neural neural like neural network uh 
you know, software to do this study. Um, but it's really, it's that it's the, the hardware is a limiting factor at this point. So hopefully that will continue, you know, to develop. All right, let's go on. Kara. So this is, I guess, still a controversy, but there's some suggestion that the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus can get into our genome. Is this uh, legit? Right. Yeah. So there's um, a new study that was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of the Sciences, a.k.a. PNAS. Yeah, uh, Um And uh, the reason that it is gaining a little bit more attention now is because it was previously, um, I think, published, it was either in PLOS One or it was some open access journal where it hadn't yet been peer reviewed. Um, so we did overcome that barrier, at least the, the it was like in a preprint archive, I guess. And so um, now this study has been peer reviewed. It's been it's been um, published in PNAS. But at the same time, there's a lot of skepticism around this this study. So we're going to need to see if other labs can find similar evidence and if we can find other lines of evidence to support the claim. So the claim here is that SARS-CoV-2 might actually be able to insert itself into the human genome, just like Steve said. And let's kind of break this down a little bit. One way that's like the most obvious way that viruses insert themselves is to the into the genome is is being a retrovirus. So retroviruses like HIV, we've talked about them before on the show, they actually utilize reverse um, transcription and they can actively insert themselves into the DNA of the host. We know that SARS-CoV-2 CoV-2 is not a retrovirus. So that is not the claim that's being made here. The claim is instead that it's using some other mechanism to do so. Now, we've got to look at this from not a new mechanism. Um, okay. they, do, they do propose a mechanism, which we'll get to, um, but we've got to look at this from two different sides. Number one, do we know if it's even happening? And number two, if it is happening, how is it happening? And right now, the answer to both of the, those questions is not firm. So, so let's kind of take a step back and, and understand that. These researchers are saying, we think it's happening. And if it is happening, this is why we think it's happening. And the reason they think it's happening, it, it seems like the crux of their arguments at the top, the observation they made that then led to the hypothesis testing was that people who are getting tested, they're having um, PCR tests for COVID-19 are still testing positive. A small number of people are still testing positive long after they seem to have cleared the active infection. And so they were wondering, why is that happening? Let's start to dig deep into this. And they were able to show in the laboratory that in cell lines that they were able to induce the virus or that they were able to get the virus into the human genome. So that is a big deal. And and nobody, I think, is arguing that that didn't happen or that it's not a big deal. But the question is, does that actually translate to real human beings? We have no idea. That wasn't studied. So I do think it's important to make that distinction right up at the front. Um, they were able to show, though, that in Petri dishes, in cell lines, they could infect these cell lines with SARS-CoV-2, look at the DNA of those cells and say, look at that. There's a piece of SARS-CoV-2 in that DNA. How did it get there? What's going on here? Um, and they believe that it happened through a specific type of transposon. So I don't know if you guys remember transposons. They're like little pieces of, of the chromosome, in this case, the viral chromosome, that can 
undergo transposition. Um, transposition is the act by which a little chunk of DNA, it's usually in bacteria. I mean, that's usually where we've learned about these things, um, can jump. Like it can jump into a phage or it can jump into a plasmid. And even if the, let's say the human DNA doesn't have a corresponding sequence, so it's not like infecting and then sitting in the same spot where that corresponding sequence is, it's able to just find find a spot and, and insert itself into the DNA. Um, there's a specific type of transposon called a line one. So a line one is a long interspersed nuclear element. Um, there are multiple lines. Line one is a specific type. And, and interestingly, line ones make up about 17% of the entire human genome. So this has happened a lot before. We know this has happened a lot before. And we don't think that this was all, you know, from from retroviruses. We think that there are other ways that the that the viral DNA could make its way into um, or the RNA could make its way into the DNA. We think reverse transcription is a very common one. The issue is that the reverse transcription would need to utilize the enzymes that are in the host. So the reverse transcriptase would need to be provided by the host. It wouldn't be something that the actual virus is providing, um, like in a retrovirus. So, so the, the problem here that I'm seeing with when I read the actual study is that number one, they're saying that even though, yes, we did recover human viral human chimeric reads um, when we looked at these uh, cultured human cells, and yes, we did see that they were inserted somewhat randomly. They weren't inserted at specific sites. So we don't think that this was a an error in the experimentation. We believe that this was an actual jump. What they didn't find is that they didn't find an endo, uh, a line one endonuclease recognition site in upwards of 30% of the, the instances that the SARS-CoV-2 made its way into the human DNA. So the very mechanism that they think could be responsible, they couldn't even find evidence of in, 30, in like almost a third of the cases. They also say in their discussion, and I'll quote here, it will be important in follow-up studies to demonstrate the presence of SARS-CoV-2 sequences integrated into the host genome in patient tissues, right? As I said, they didn't do this in people. They did it in cell lines. And then they go on to say, however, this will be technically challenging because only a small fraction of cells in any patient tissues are expected to be positive for viral sequences. Consistent with this notion, it's been estimated that only between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 100,000 mouse cells infected with LCMV, either in culture or in the animal carried viral DNA copies integrated into the genome. So what they're saying here is that it's going to be hard to test because at any given cell that we look at, any given sequence of DNA probably wouldn't have SARS in it. But my question, and Steve, I'm hoping maybe you can just help me with the biochemistry here, is their original observation was that people are testing positive even though they don't have the infection. So clearly they're getting evidence of viral DNA. It's it's the very thing that they that made them want to do this study that they're saying they're mm. never going to be able to find. And to me that's really strange. Like you would think that if you had a positive PCR test then you would be able to then further look at that sample. So I don't know if the the, the problem is that they say okay there yeah there's the the DNA is somewhere in this patient but we don't know that it's incorporated into the genome versus free floating or maybe there's some viruses right. hanging out. But or... the weird thing is what they said is it's likely that it's incorporated into the genome by the virtue of the fact that they're still testing positive. 
So the yeah, thing but that I think the, that's just a hypothesis. It is. Not a, it's, it's a, not and a so that's why I take us back to the very beginning statement that I made, which is that a we have to determine whether or not this is even happening, and b if it is happening, what's the mechanism? This paper does a really good job of talking about a potential mechanism, and it shows that it can happen experimentally in a petri dish, but it doesn't say that it's actually happening in human beings, and that's left for us to determine. But it's it's you know it's better evidence than random a random hypothesis. They're showing hey, it could happen. We have a mechanism by which it could happen, and we even made it happen when we forced it. Now let's see if it's actually happening. And it could be one of those things where it's a rare event. It yeah, also totally. happen in everyone, and uh, some quirky thing has to happen, which of course you have millions of people who are infected. It's going to happen every now and then. Yeah, and they do make that point. But what yeah. I guess what I'm saying, the confusing part for me is that the very thing that they're saying is why they wanted to investigate it in the first place. At the end of the study, they're saying would be so hard to find that we might not even be able to do it. And it's like, well, so then are you saying that it's probably not because it's in the DNA? That's probably not what's responsible for so many people testing positive, even after they cleared the infection? <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, 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 my overall sense was that this is in the hypothesis stage. Won't it be interesting mm -hmm. if that turns out to be true? And not necessarily scary. I don't think it's necessarily No, scary. and that's that's what's important because they got some backlash after they first study or after they first published in the preprint because people were like this is going to scare the crap out of people. People are already mm. scared of mRNA vaccines and now you're saying that COVID-19 might make its way into the DNA. Well, does the mRNA vaccine make its way into the DNA? Like blah blah blah. You know, and the the researchers say, "Hey, that's valid." We, we got ahead of ourselves. That's valid criticism. Mm -hmm. Don't be scared. If anything, this could, if it, if it pans out, could be really interesting for infectious disease uh, physicians and researchers because it could actually demonstrate a type of immunity. It could actually lead to a better understanding of the way that our own DNA can now code for the fact that it recognized certain viruses. Um, so there's a lot of potential outcomes that could be clinically relevant. Um, but that said, I think we're still way too early in the in the questioning phase of this. Yeah, exactly. It's still a hypothesis with a little bit of potential, like, not evidence to support the hypothesis yet, but but evidence to support the fact that the hypothesis could be supported in the future. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's why that's how science works. Yeah. Um, and and if there is any interesting follow up on this, which may be years, you know, we'll mm -hmm. we'll see. We'll, we'll we'll definitely keep track of it. But again, yeah. I think it's, it, at this point, like this is this is kind of basic science wonky stuff, and not something that people need to worry about. Oh, no. Yeah, and clinically. I wouldn't even worry about it, even if it tends to be true. I yeah. mean, all of our bodies are full. Like I said, um, what was just line ones alone make up 17% of the human genome. We've been around for hundreds of thousands of years and millions more before that, before we were act technically homo sapiens. And, and when you look at the genome, there's so much garbage we've collected from mutations and infections and historic plagues and, and, and our bodies learn to incorporate some of this information. And it actually, in the grand scheme of things, very likely helped us survive. And I think that's something we have to remember. Just because a, a virus can insert itself into your DNA doesn't mean it's a retrovirus, doesn't mean it's HIV, doesn't mean it necessarily is going to continue to make you sick even. Yeah. Most and, of these things are non-coding. And maybe that's how Spider-Man became Spider-Man. Probably that's how Spider-Man became Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. 
Wait a minute. It's you a think good, that's how Spider-Man nah, became Spider-Man? I just do that out there. <laughs> that's a good, good takeaway from this. <laughs> this is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, Bob, what are hypersonic jets? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Exciting stuff coming Whoa, your slow way. slow down, Bob. So, yes, University of Central Florida researchers uh, have recently announced a milestone success in creating what's called an oblique detonation wave engine. Now, that's theorized to be capable of high hypersonic flight, which is of, wait for it, Mach 17. Mach 17, Ooh. which is... Yikes. Which is... Really, really fast. Now, Kareem Ahmed uh, is an associate professor of mechanical engineering and uh, of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Central Florida. He's also the lead author of the research paper in the journal Proceedings PNAS. No, journal Proceedings of the <laughs> National Academy of Sciences. It's always PNAS. Uh, <laughs> PNAS. <laughs> All right. So, why why is this weirdly named engine so revolutionary, and how does it work? Uh, so, to, to to understand that, you're going to need to know the difference between an explosion and a detonation. Before I did this research, they were, you know, kind of roughly equivalent words, right? They sounded pretty much like the same thing, right? Explosion, detonation, but there's actually critical differences. Uh, bottom line, I'll bottom line it. A detonation is an explosion, but not all explosions are detonations. Um, hmm. So now, so explosion is an easy one. It's a general term. Essentially, it's a an, an accelerated release of energy with intense temperatures and, and pressures, and it releases gases in an expanding volume, right? Easy. Uh, a, a detonation is kind of the same thing, except it expands faster than the speed of sound, uh, 761 miles per hour, 1,200 kilometers per hour. Uh, very simplistic, obviously. So now I try to think of a good way to describe this visually. So imagine one of those big plastic uh, jugs filled with water, right? Fill it with a flammable gas instead of expensive water. Uh, so it's got this gas in it. Now ignite the gas at the nozzle. All right, just put one, put your lighter right next to the nozzles. Now, then you, you can imagine a, a wave of burning gas, right, that travels down the opening and then slowly to the bottom of the big bottle. Right, you can see like this wave of of ignited gas traveling down. So that's the flame front. The, the front of that is the flame front, and it can move slowly, or that 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 flame front can move very fast, depending on many variables. Like, for example, oh, the type of gas that you're burning. If that if that flame front, if it burns faster than sound, right? If it if it burns really fast, now the unburned gas ahead of that flame front, it's it's not pushed away. It becomes a shock wave, and its temperature and pressure rise almost instantaneously to very high levels. And uh, this shock wave, that shock wave, is a detonation wave. That's what that's what we're talking about. So so if a if a if a combustion process has a subsonic flame, like conventional, you know, subsonic flame, you're burning by thermal conduction. That's called not a detonation. That's a deflagration process 
Um, deflagration, D-E-F-L-A-G-R-A-T-I-O-N, deflagration process. So fireworks, even jet engines use a deflagration process. Now, this is relatively slow. It's controlled, and therefore, it's a safe way to turn chemical energy into the energy of motion. And this is how most of our transportation works. And that's fine. It's been doing well, but it's not the best way to go about doing this. Detonation processes use supersonic flame fronts, and they are the most powerful forms of combustion. Close to 100% of the fuel can be burned in this process. Remember that Beirut blast? Was that last year? That huge, yep. that huge yeah, explosion? Scary. That yeah. was that was a detonation. So now we've been thinking, you know, we, we've known about this for years, about how powerful a detonation is. And we've been thinking about building engines that can harness it for decades, like over half a century, 60 years. But a detonation, you know, takes on the order of what? Microseconds. Super, super fast. Super, super quick. So h- how do you make that happen in a way that, that you can repeat it or extend it and still be safe, right? I mean, you, you want to you wanna ride a plane that's running on that Beirut detonation? It sounds pretty scary and risky to me. Well, they, they did create one type of engine um, in 2008. This was a pulse detonation engine. So imagine you've got a series of repeated detonations. Uh, that's what they did, called a pulse detonation engine, uh, 2008. The big problem, though, is that by its very nature, it's not, generating, it's not generating thrust all of the time. It's doing it in these discrete pulses. But it was a good proof of concept. The second type of detonation engine is the rotating detonation engine. This one's really interesting and much and much better than the the pulse uh, engine. Uh, shock waves from one detonation are tuned to trigger subsequent detonations and you, you, by basically creating a rotating de- detonation wave within this like ring-shaped channel. And so that's that's a valid process. But we thought, engineers thought that this was impossible until the University of Central Florida demonstrated one last year. Like, huh, these guys are awesome. But that's not even the best thing that they've done. They These are the guys that now created this third type of detonation engine. This is the oblique detonation wave engine, ODWE. This lab experiment, this experimental engine that they made, that this is what it was. It was this third type of detonation engine. So what? So try to imagine this. Now you have a mix. You're creating a mix. You've got, in this experiment, they had hypersonic speeds. Uh, they had air moving at hypersonic speeds. I'm not sure how they did that because that's five times the speed of sound. That's impressive. So they have this amazing uh, hypersonic uh, air um, that they then mix with with a fuel like like uh, like like hydrogen. So you've got this mixture, and they angle that mixture of air, super super hypersonic air, and the fuel. They angle it towards a ramp, and that ramp kind of uh, goes goes up a certain degree, say 30, 30 degrees. And because because that hypersonic flow of air hits that ramp, it kind of flows into itself and compresses itself, which creates a shock wave, which then heats and detonates the fuel air mixture. So you got that. So th- th- then this blast. This creates exhaust gases, um, and they blast out at very high speed, causing the massive thrust. So that's what this oblique detonation wave engine is. I guess oblique refers to the oblique angle that the uh, that the air and fuel mixture hits, which which causes the shock wave that that ignites everything. So in theory, uh, theory tells us the math tells us that if you c- can create a detonation using this type of engine, that you will you will be able to create uh, an exhaust traveling at, at 13,000 miles per hour or 21,000 kilometers per hour. That's 17 times the speed of sound. This is far faster than anyone has ever traveled in, in the atmosphere. 
the experimental setup by these researchers, they actually made this happen. This actually happened. What they did was they, they were, they were tweaking it. They were, they were t- in the, in the test, they were tweaking the hypersonic airflow and the air fuel mix. So they would kind of change it up. And by changing it up, they were able to come up with this, this magic mixture, you know, this magic numbers that produced a stable detonation wave for three seconds. Now, Kareem Ahmed said, I mentioned him before, he said that this is the first time a detonation has been shown to be stabilized experimentally. We are finally able to hold the detonation in space in oblique detonation form. It's almost like freezing an intense explosion in physical space. Now, you think, oh, three seconds, big deal. I mean, that's nothing. But that it, this is impressive because before that, there, I think it was, uh, you know, milliseconds. People, uh, researchers were able to do this for milliseconds. So this is many, this is many hundreds or thousands of times better than, uh, than, than previous experiments. And the reason why this stopped, not because everything ended. They stopped it on purpose because they were afraid that the like the quartz windows were going to melt because in order wow. in, in order for this to be to be optically observed and, and studied they had these uh, they had a section of it that had these quartz windows and they stopped it because you know it, this wasn't it wasn't strong enough to withstand uh, this to continue more than three seconds so the next step then would be to replace these uh, these quartz windows with metal ones and see how long it lasts you know maybe it lasts four seconds maybe it just keeps going and going and going for minutes that you know that's to me that seems to be uh what the next big step that they would need to do uh the other one would be they need they need to figure out how to alter the parameters like the fuel mix and the flow speed in real time so they could try so they could see how this would work in real world conditions which is of course is obviously very different than in the lab but this still is a is a is a really amazing milestone and really exciting so all right what do we what if this all works what do we have well this would be so dramatic that i would actually classify this as as a disruptive technology uh kara how about if you could fly from la to new york in less than 30 minutes Oh my God! That's, my life would be so different. Th- this is what, right, not just your life. A lot of people's lives. I think the no, my life. That's what's important. I right got now. you. I, I understand <laughs> your life followed quickly by by my life. So that's so that's at Mach seventeen or thirteen thousand miles an hour. That's high hypersonic speed. Wait, does it make you sick though? I can't, I don't want to fly in that. It scares me. I mean, you know, you're flying now at six or seven hundred miles an hour. Yeah, you know, you know, add another sixteen thousand miles per hour. That's all we're doing. <laughs> No, actually, it's not the velocity, it's the acceleration. Right. As long as you get up there, right. It's all about the acceleration. Um, And and it would be, you know, it would be comfortable. It would have to be. Otherwise, it's not going to be a commercial air flight. Uh, Military flights would probably be a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, But imagine, now this is high hypersonic speed, 10 to Mach 10 to to 17 or so. Uh, You can get anywhere on the earth within two hours. Two hours. I mean, just go to Australia, be there in under two hours. That's amazing. But even better than that, in a lot of ways, this would allow a space plane with an SSTO, that's single stage to orbit. It would take off like a plane and get in, get into space basically without any rocket boosters. Uh, that would be that, – that's a game changer right there. But the thing is, what makes this really disruptive is that right now there's essentially no radar or missile defense anywhere that could deal with uh, – like if we had a hypersonic missile like this, that's scary. Uh, that's something that a lot of other countries would take notice of. And that's, that's when I say that this could be a disruptive technology, that's part of it. Um, and how about this? Uh, a missile, or even if, if you take over control over a hypersonic plane, you don't even need nukes or explosives on board. Because just think about this kinetic energy traveling at, at Mach, Mach 17, 13,000 miles an hour, 21, 
thousand kilometers per hour. The kinetic energy alone does would do nuclear level type of damage. You know, like a, a low yield nuke. That that's a, an amazing amount of kinetic energy. You would you it's so powerful you don't even need a nuke or even explosives on board. So, so then you might think, you know, wow, should we even do this? Uh, well, duh. I mean, th- you can't even ask that question because this is going to happen. And in fact, it may have already happened. Uh, what if I told you that China has claims now, this was the end of last year, that they have built a hypersonic jet engine prototype like this, and they tested it at speeds of up to, uh, I think, uh, nine times the speed of nine, of, of nine times the speed of sound. And they have, they have this amazing, amazingly powerful wind tunnel. They say they've already tested this prototype, which means that that uh, the research I just told you about may not have been the first time this was this was successfully researched and 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 pulled off in in an experiment. They've got a prototype. Th- that's scary to me. Um, if, I mean, they could potentially have this uh, a lot sooner than we than we thought, or be, or before you know other countries that you know that that we think would be more reasonable uh, about this type of technology, but. Analysts have looked at th- looked at this, and they say that this technology is still experimental. Specifically, the Chinese um, ex- uh, technology it's still experimental, and it will likely take years before there's a military or or, or a civilian application. Um, and then there's a quote from Dr. Uzi Rubin. He's the founder and first director of the U- Israeli Missile Defense Organization. He said, "Even if promising, it will take about a generation for it to be used commercially. I believe that hypersonic human flight is not imminent, if at all." So I hope it's it's not imminent. I mean. I would like to see this technology developed. I mean, just for for the, the amazing uh, applications that it could be used for. Of, of course, the, you know, the the bad applications. You know, lots of technologies is double edged sword. I wonder though, like at the, those speeds, if wind, if turbulence is going to just be intolerable. Wouldn't like it go above the weather, Steve? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, not even just weather. Just like you're going that fast. Just just I don't know. Would that magnify? Yeah, the tiniest pocket. Yeah, of air pressure change. Yeah, I guess um, that could potentially be one of the one of those hurdles that would that would be really tough. But even if you went out to Mach five, that still will get you coast to coast in under an hour, or across the Atlantic in under an hour. You know, you oh yeah, there's kind of a little Absolutely. bit of diminishing returns when you you know um, in terms of the in terms of the speed. Yeah, Mach so, ten to be fine. I mean, yeah, let's go to Mach ten. Then I, I don't need seventeen. Mach ten would make me happy too. <laughs> but but seventeen, man, half hour to. Coast to coast, come on, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll meet you for lunch. Be there in a half hour. Yeah, it'll cost you, you know, two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, right. I, you know, the the most exciting application of this technology might be single stage to orbit. You know, just that's take, huge. Having our yeah our our ships take off like a plane, get up to Mach seventeen, and then switch over to your rockets and blast into orbit from there. There you go, right? That would be incredible. Yeah, that's that's been the dream, you know, a space plane like that. Yeah. Absolutely. But I've been I've been reading about that for literally decades, and you know they they had prototypes, they failed it. Uh, These technologies take decades. Yeah, yeah. It would not surprise me if this this very specific technology is in use in like forty or fifty years, like that. Which is, is is probably a reasonable time horizon. Yeah, it's just it's yeah. just so depressing. I mean, we we had supersonic transport, so we had it, Concorde. We had this, and now we don't. And it's like, what the hell? I mean, if you if you look at at, at, at jets from decades ago, you know, we're not getting we're not getting anywhere faster. Uh, the only thing, the main difference is, sure, planes are probably a little bit safer, but the entertainment's a lot better on the plane. Uh, but that's about it. 
I mean, well, listen, it's so commercial jets. Commercial jets are as fast as they're going to get. It's not a technological issue at this point. It's just a fuel efficiency and cost and et cetera. And so that's it. Until you leap to supersonic, regular supersonic jets, not these hypersonic ones. And then we can go Mach 2, 3. Obviously, we have the technology. The Concorde existed already. And we had it. It's just a matter of making it commercially viable. That's like, like, oh, look, here's our our transporter like Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now we don't have it anymore. What the hell? What happened? The market collapsed. Ah, it's more complicated than that, but whatever. Yeah, well, that was the bottom line. Was there was an accident? There was nine eleven happened. They couldn't sustain, you know, the they couldn't sustain the program. wasn't worth it. It just yes, came it down was. to money. Came down to money. I never, I never rode one. Damn it. Yeah, but tickets were like thirty times like a regular. Commercial yeah, and I couldn't ticket. afford it. What's your point? That's that's why it was unsustainable. But if you, get, <laughs> but there are other companies working on like supersonic, like Mach two three commercial jets. And trying to come in at a more cost-effective, you know, price, um, and so that is much more likely to happen, you know, in the next ten to twenty years than these, yeah, you know, re- ridiculous the, hypersonic. The, the real things. problem but is also, and then the other thing, the other thing competing with that, of course, it's Elon Musk's rocket city-to-city rocket travel. Yeah. You know, I'd be cool. Which, I'd be cool with that too. Who knows if that's going to go anywhere? The real problem, though, is that they call Mach five to ten hypersonic, and they call Mach ten. To Mach 17, high hypersonic. Like, really? Really? You couldn't throw in, like, an ubersonic? You know, you got to do a high hypersonic? You know, you couldn't use ultrasonic, because that's already been used for for uh, the frequency of waves. But call it something cool and fun, not high hypersonic. That's a little, that's a little pet peeve. All right, one more news item. This one is going to be a quickie. It's about sequestering carbon. Now, not capturing carbon, but sequestering it. Do you hmm. know what the difference is, Jay? Yeah, when you capture carbon, it means that you have grabbed it. When you sequester it, it means that you've stuffed it. <laughs> yes, that's, that's basically correct. If we're going to – one of the methods that we could use to combat to climate change, obviously we want to reduce the amount of CO2 that we're releasing into the air. But if we could take some of that carbon dioxide back out of the air, the carbon, and store it long-term, basically put it back into long-term storage. Right now we're taking it out of long-term storage, fossil fuels – burning it, putting it into the atmosphere, and shifting the balance. So how do we reverse that process? What do you think is the best way to capture carbon? Quintillions of nanites in the atmosphere. Cow farts? Putting something Um, over a manure pile? Capturing it where it's it's created, you know, right at the creation plant. Just vegetation. Vegetation is very efficient at capturing carbon. The problem with vegetation is that it decomposes and puts the carbon back, right? It's only a temporary store of the carbon. It's still good. That's why the whole growing trees thing is not a permanent sequestering. It's not sequestering carbon. It's just temporarily taking that out of circulation. Well, what so if the, we... more, the more vegetation we have at any given moment, the more carbon will be you know, bound up in that form. Well, what if we made – what if we genetically modified plants to be immortal? Yeah, so – but what you're, what you're really asking is can we use plants to capture carbon and then do something to put that carbon into a permanent form, sequester it? So that's what we're talking Kinda about similar. here. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I was being um, – <laughs> Generous, thank you. Yeah, generous. There are various you know, researchers, companies looking for ways to take plants and treat them into – turn them into carbon – that is either just can be buried or might even be useful 
you know, and not useful as a fuel because that's just another way of burning the carbon and putting it back into the atmosphere. So biofuels are fine because they aren't releasing new carbon. But again, it's only that temporary store of carbon. So there was a recent study looking at a particular method where they try to bind it with silicon to make silicon carbide, also known as known as carborundum. And this is a this is an industrially useful, very hard material. It's used in ceramics, sandpaper, semiconductors, and LEDs, for example. So they're saying, hey, if we could just make a ton of the silicon carbide with carbon from the atmosphere, that would be a way of long-term sequestering that carbon and we get a useful compound out of it to boot. So that's the process that they're working on and uh, they, they developed the process where they can do that. But here's the thing. This is why I don't think this is ever going to be that useful. It requires heating the, the vegetation to 1,600 degrees Celsius. Mm. So you're essentially burning it to mush, right? Well, it's not just that. It's, it's that you are um, – it takes a lot of energy to create that heat. And, of course, that, you know, making energies releases carbon. If they say – if we could do this process entirely with renewable energy, it wouldn't. Okay, sure, but for now, we're not 100% renewable in our energy. And so anything that, any industrial process that requires high heat is energy intensive is, is going to be counterproductive, basically. Also, in the this process only captures about 14% of the carbon in the vegetation. So it's not that efficient. Oh, jeez. So it's a good idea. I just don't think it's going to be this like a meaningful solution for those two reasons. It's pretty inefficient. It requires super high heat, which is going to be energy intensive, and that's not a good thing. But the idea is a good one. The idea of try, forget about trying to capture carbon directly from the atmosphere. Let plants do their job, and then let's just figure out ways to use the, the plant material and to turn it into something useful, ideally, um, like something hard, you know, like the the carborundum, or at the very least is stable and we could bury it. Uh, so, uh, however, the other limiting factor here is we're kind of limited in the amount of land that we have to use, and we're kind of using it all, you know, all the arable land to make mm-hmm. food. And so turning over any significant portion of land to to capture carbon is not a good idea, which is also why biofuels are always going to be niche because we're not going to solve our problem with biofuel because we just don't have the land to do it. So what are the solutions there? Well, one is you can use existing vegetation that's currently waste. So corn stalks, right? Or switchgrass or something where, you know, it's already there and we're just sort of taking out of the stream and, and using it in a process like this. Uh, or there's you know research programs trying to figure out how to like grow algae and vats, you know things that don't use land that you could either do in the ocean, of course, without being disruptive to the ocean, or you could do in in you know in vats of liquid or something where you're not it, it's you could do vertically. It's not going to use a lot of uh, arable land. This isn't the thing, uh, and again, it's one of those technologies where it's got to have simultaneously have a lot of characteristics that are all lining up in order to be useful. And we're not there yet, but I think this this research may bear fruit. And there's, there's a lot of uh, researchers independently working on different ways of doing this. And what I like about this is that it's not trying to reinvent the wheel in terms of the carbon capture itself. And you're kind of already halfway there with plants because 
the 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 plants are making high energy compounds you know with photosynthesis so they're capturing energy capturing carbon making you know high energy molecules and then all we got to do is figure out a way to make use of them in in a in a form that does not put that carbon back into the atmosphere so and that is something to keep an eye on you know anything i i pay attention to any advances in that kind of technology again this isn't it but this is a sort of heading in the right direction life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one mc crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour all right let's go on jay it's who's that noisy time okay guys last week i played this noisy you know the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common they don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit the views. Whoa. It's a perfect quote. Yeah, right. Would you guys like to make a guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know who that is. But you missed right, we- the, the second part of it, which is that when you become an inconvenient fact for the powerful, that's dangerous. All right. Well, don't you blow the secret, Steve. Yeah, I won't. Let me do what I got to do, okay? I'll tell you one thing, though. Kara has no idea who this no is. No idea. Okay, so I have a listener emailed me in. Uh, the listener's name is Iftash Yakar. Hi, Jay. Is this week's Who's That Noisy? John Cleese talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, that is incorrect, but that is a pretty cool guess. And, you know, if you because for those of you who don't know who this is, that is a perfectly cromulent guess. But it's, it's incorrect. Let's continue on. Eddie Anthony sent an email and said, Hi, Jay. I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to guess Bill Bailey, a British comedian and musician. I think it's him because it sounds like his accent, it sounds like his style of wit, and there is some kind of instrument keyboard being played, which he often does in his comedy routines. Thanks for all the noises. Eddie, you're wrong, but in oh so many right ways. <laughs> yeah. Let's continue on. Uh, I'm going to jump right to the winner just because everybody guessed this one correctly. I mean, so many people. I'm so proud of our audience for being the exact kind of people I need them to be because so many of them got this dead on. This was many, many, many Who's That Noisy listeners' very first time guessing, and they got it perfectly right. But uh, this was the first person. Megan Parker sent it in literally seconds after Steve downloaded it or uploaded it. She says, hey, Captain Meatball, right there. (laughs) Right there she had me. She was winning even before I read what she had to say, okay? It's Tom Baker's fourth doctor. Guys, you know who that is? Mm -hmm. Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor from Doctor Who. So I wrote um, as a question. Yeah, so she got it right, and thank you, Megan. So first off, what's with the scarf? Can anybody explain the scarf? Yes, it's quirky and eccentric. I mean, it really is like... Dangerous when you look at that length of that guy's scarf. Okay, this is a quote from from an episode called "The Face of Evil Part 4. I love that it has four parts. Nineteen seventy-seven. All right, that was that was everybody's favorite doctor. A lot of people said it's their their all-time favorite doctor. I don't know if you have an opinion on that, Steve. Tenet, yeah, uh, but uh, he, he Baker's good. He, I mean, he's the doctor that that was that we grew up with. Even though we were. Really big fans back then. But uh, the, in terms of the reboot, more recently, Tenet is my favorite doctor. But that quote, I have to say, that is a variation on a quote from Sherlock Holmes, which was, 
you should never hypothesize before you look at facts because then you invariably twist the facts to fit the hypothesis rather than the hypothesis to fit the facts. Yeah, that's why we don't p-hack. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Would you ever say, Kara, that the PNAS has p-hacked? There are probably some many instances of p-hacking in the PNAS. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to p-hack uh, you somehow, in the PNAS. I, I'll sleep better tonight somehow. That's going to be my new reason. my new threat. <laughs> Watch out and p-hack you in PNAS. I think you need to do a rap song about <laughs> p-hacking the PNAS. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so many things I want to say right now. All right, can't well, say I, I, I can't say, say a single one no. of them. <laughs> Thank you, Simon King, for sending in, like, literally the perfect noisy. I really appreciate that. We have a new noisy this week. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Mark Lamorine. L-A-M-O-U-R-I-N-E. What do you think? I got it right? 100%. Lamorine-ish. All right. Now, the reason why I am uh, using this one, there's a couple of reasons. One, because I really like how analog this sound is. And two, it was so easy last week. It was a very easy who's that noisy. I had to come back with something a little bit more difficult. Okay, and here we go. Hmm. Just keeps going. Has an incredibly analog sound to it. That's the that's the only hint I'm going to give you. If you think you know what this week's noisy is, or, man, if you heard something cool, because people are sending me in things that are cool, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Steve, we have a few cool things going on. Now, as you know, right now, right this second, people are registering for Nexus, N-E-C-S-S dot org. The name of the conference this year is The Future Has Landed. We will be discussing technologies that exist right now that you should be incredibly impressed with, that we should celebrate The entire conference is going to revolve around incredible feats of science and technology that exist today. And I'm super excited because we've lined up some excellent speakers. You can go to our website and check out all the details. Please do join us. And like I said, don't let those sketchy little robots register before you because they might, because there could be a hundred thousand of them. And they'll just take all the, sh- the tickets away. There isn't a limit to tickets. They don't know that. So just <laughs> whatever. Just, just register. Okay, so we will be attending DragonCon. We are going to have a private show at DragonCon. You can go to theskepticsguide.org forward slash events to see details about that private show at DragonCon. I would dare say that this DragonCon private show is our most intimate private show that we do at this point because we typically get a limited number of people that come to that one just because everybody else is doing things at DragonCon. But it's a lot of fun. We love it every year. It's always it's always like us at our craziest. We're usually wearing costumes. So please do join us at that. We are also going to have a Skeptics Guide live podcast recording at DragonCon, which we have not been given our date or time yet, but we will let you know when that happens. I'm just putting that on your radar. And we have a few other things coming up. So we have possibly something else going on in Atlanta. That's all I could say right now. But if you think about it, you might be able to figure it out. More details, hopefully within a week. We will fast forward now to to mid-November. So on November 18th, we will be doing an extravaganza in Denver. And then... On, do, on November 19th, we will be doing a, a private show in Denver. And then on the 20th, we will be doing a private show at Fort Collins. Anybody know what Fort Collins is? Yeah, it's a town in Colorado. Right. Apparently, it used to be a fort. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And now it's a town. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Okay, so so I, I just finished up the details on this right now. So you could go to uh, theskepticsguide.org and you can go to our events page and check out all the details on any of these. Please do join us. Um, we're super excited to get back to the live shows. Like, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. I really, It just feels like so distant. Um, and I'm really, really anxious to start getting out there and meeting people again and having fun again. Finally. So anyway, please do join us for any one of these events. Steve, I'm going to hand the baton over to you now. Yes, and I'm going to do one quick email. Uh, this comes from Adam, who writes, Love the show. I sometimes like to contact the show and add my thoughts on topics you have discussed. One area that was discussed last week was on electric planes. I had to add to something that was mentioned. I think Steve compared the energy density of jet fuel to batteries and it got me thinking. Those are four words I love to read in emails, by the way. It got me thinking. He goes on, do electrically powered vehicles of any kind ever have to reach the same energy density in their batteries as their dinosaur-fueled counterparts to travel the same distance or carry the same loads? I ask this for the simple fact that electrically powered vehicles don't need to carry the same amount of energy because they are more efficient. Far less of the energy will be lost as heat. While jet fuel is more energy-dense, Far more of that energy is just wasted. Is there a better term we can use in energy density that takes into account efficiency? It would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this because I have heard you guys talk about energy density before, and this element has just occurred to me. I think Evan mentioned something briefly about efficiency, and I think it's really important. Thanks, Adam. Okay, so um, I could not find any term that combines efficiency and energy density into one term. Um, you just have to to account for them separately. But just to clarify a couple of things, we often re refer to energy density, but um, there's actually two terms here that are relevant. Energy, energy density is energy per volume, as the term density implies, right? So it's how much, how much energy is stored in one gallon of or one liter of gasoline or a one liter volume of lithium ion battery. That's energy density. Uh, for cars, um, it's not that critical because, you know, you, the batteries, I mean, battery sizes are a thing, but it's not that limiting, much of a limiting factor. The perhaps more important is specific energy. Specific energy is energy per mass. And that's important because we don't want it to be too heavy. It's like how many kilograms of gasoline or battery are you dragging around? That's also much more important when it comes to things like rockets, you know, when you have to, where the fuel equation comes into it, into play. So anyway, we, we, we tend to use the term energy density to refer to both really energy density and specific energy, meaning just the overall density of the energy. But those are the specific you know, technical definitions of those terms. Just to give you a couple of numbers to put things into, into uh, context. So uh, Adam is right. Electric vehicles are more efficient than uh, gasoline, internal combustion engines, even assuming that the vehicles themselves have the same you know, mileage efficiency. Electric engines uh, convert about twice as much of their energy into acceleration as do internal combustion engines. Uh, e EVs are about 50% efficient. Obviously, it's good. there's some variability there, but that's a good average figure. Uh, internal combustion engines are about 25% efficient. So you get about twice as the efficiency. So, so if we say that lithium-ion batteries have a specific energy of between 
100 and 265 watt hours per kilogram. Let's take the higher end of that, which like the, the, the newer batteries are using like 250 or so watt hours per kilogram. Gasoline has a specific energy of 1220 watt hours per kilogram. So that sounds like a lot more. But if you multiply them each by their efficiency, right? So that means lithium ion batteries, you have to cut in half. So let's say 132 watt hours per kilogram. Gasoline, you have to divide by four. That's 305 watt hours per kilogram. So when you look at it that way, 132 versus 305, it's not that huge of a difference, right? It's about twice, a little bit more than twice. It doesn't sound like that big of a difference. And, you know, batteries don't have to get that much more you know, energy efficient, specific energy efficient to, to really be get up to parity with gasoline because they have that double efficiency advantage. You know, if we can get batteries up to up to 600 watt hours per kilogram, then they'll have the, I guess we can call it specific energy efficiency of gasoline, which is interesting. So yeah, you have to take that into consideration. So, we have a great interview coming up with Julia Gallup, so let's go to that now. We are joined now by Julia Gallup. Julia, welcome back to the SGU. Hi, it's so great to be back. It's like old times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since we've uh, had you on the show. I know. Uh, and we, we decided to have you back because you have a new book out. Is this your first book? It is my first book. It, oh, I worked on it for so long, it feels like my 10th yeah. or something. But no, it's actually my first. I know. It takes a long time, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. It was feels, like the longest Feels good, ever. though, doesn't it? <laughs> so the book is The Scout Mindset, an interesting uh-huh. title, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. So tell us what the book is about. Uh, yeah, so the the scout mindset is my term for um, essentially the motivation to see things as they are and not as you wish they were. So the term uh, is part of this kind of framing metaphor in the book in which I say that, you know, humans are, we're very often by default in what I call soldier mindset, which is the motivation to defend your pre-existing beliefs or defend things you want to believe against any evidence that might threaten them. Um, and so it's not a new phenomenon that I'm, you know, inventing here. This is something you guys have discussed a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, been well studied under different names like motivated reasoning or sometimes um, rationalization or self-justification uh, or denial. These are all different facets of what I'm calling soldier mindset. Um, and I call it that because the way that we reason is so often defensive, where we're kind of trying to fortify our beliefs against any, you know, potential opposing arguments. We try to shoot down ideas that we disagree with or, um, or poke holes in other people's logic. Hmm. Um, when we like concede a point, it's like we're ceding territory in a battle. Um, so it's all very militaristic, um, which is why I call it soldier mindset. I like and then it. Scout mindset. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I've always liked a good metaphor. And so this, yeah, the metaphor in my book is kind of like this compound kind of mutant metaphor <laughs> that I created by, uh, by fusing together the soldier metaphor with the scout metaphor. Um, and and so scout mindset is an alternative to soldier mindset uh, because the scout's role is not to attack or defend. It's yeah. to go out and see what's really there and, you know, put together as accurate a map of a situation or an issue as possible. Um, so it's kind of, you know, the scout metaphor is about, you know, exploring and trying to see what's out there. And it's also about map making and kind of the recognition that your beliefs about the world and all of the judgments you make are 
uh, they're not reality. They're not objective reality. They're your map. And your map is just inevitably going to be imperfect and incomplete and flawed. And the, your goal over time is to just improve the map and you know, make it more accurate as you explore. So that is what I call scout mindset, basically trying to be uh, intellectually honest and curious about what's actually true. So in you know, your getting updated on the research on this topic, do you think that what's what is more true? Are there pe- people who have the scout mindset and people who have the soldier mindset? Or does everybody have both on different topics? Uh, much more the latter. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, even though I sometimes talk about scouts or soldiers, um, I try to emphasize that that's just shorthand. Um, and we are actually all a mix. The, the scout and soldier are basically archetypes. Um, and so you know, some people are especially good at scout mindset in some contexts, um, or you know, better than average in general. Um, but we are all a mix of both, and we we can kind of shift from one mindset towards the other um, to being you know more or less truth seeking or intellectually honest, depending on the context or the topic. Yeah. So sacred cows, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. So some people, um, I, I can definitely think of people who are, who are you know very often really in scout mindset at work like in their work let's say they're a trader or something like a financial trader um they're very happy to test and disprove their own assumptions about the market but then they you know get them talking about politics at a bar and they're you know completely in soldier mindset and are not at all interested in testing or disproving their assumptions um or like in a you know in their relationships they might be in soldier mindset uh, and not very interested in considering the possibility that other people's perspectives might be valid or that there might be problems in their relationship or something like that. And even just day to day, you know, if I'm, if I can sort of think privately about something, I'm, it's easier for me to be in scout mindset, because I'm not being challenged, I'm not being put on the defensive. Um, but then, you know, if I'm online, and people are yelling at me <laughs> about how wrong I am, then it's much harder to be in scout mindset, because I'm, you know, being kind of put on the spot, and my reputation is being challenged, and so on. So yeah, it's a spectrum, and we kind of fluctuate back and forth. But some people just, you know, anecdotally, if you look around the world and get to know people, they're they're better at being in scout mindset in these kind of especially challenging situations where a lot of people have <laughs> have trouble. And so the part of the point of the book was to try to look at a bunch of those examples and ask, you know, what can we learn um, from the times that people do succeed at uh, overcoming motivated reasoning and, and being intellectually honest? It's interesting that you could slip from those, you know, two mindsets instantly with zero awareness right exactly. you just yeah brain just clicks yeah. over to the it's other one I, mean, I think plays in. as a skeptic you know we train ourselves to to become more aware of it you know we just want to feel that or or be aware when we're slipping into you know more of a soldier mindset and i know that i have that like it's great it's great to be able to feel it yeah it took no a long it is time to get there i i'm so glad to hear you say that because Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I'm uh, man. Those soldiers, I hate those soldiers. I'm I'm a scout 100, percent and I'm always oh, like, God. ah, are you though? <laughs> I um I I'm I'm much more. I have much more trust in someone's reasoning ability in general and just sort of their intellectual honesty if they can tell me, you know, oh yes, I frequently notice myself, like catch myself in soldier mindset um, because it just seems much more likely, even if I don't know the person at all, uh, just on priors, like it's pretty unlikely that this person is an exception to this general rule of, of humanity. <laughs> um, it's much more likely that they're just not very self-aware. So kudos. Definitely. Yeah. That. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There's definitely some family topics that, uh, that when they come up, 
and and uh, <laughs> and my brothers know what I'm talking about. When they when they come up, I can feel <laughs> I can feel the reason leaving me. It's like it's yeah, you know, yeah. it's just like uh, emotion takes over, <laughs> and I say stuff that maybe I wouldn't normally say or I will regret a little bit, but I could feel it just going. Like I can't. I'm like in my mind, I'm saying I can't control myself right now, and it's real. <laughs> it really does feel reflexive. I'm interested in your take, you know, because as I've continued my work in in uh-huh. psychology and psychotherapy, I think that my skeptical perspectives have um, become more well-rounded. Mm. And one of the things that I think I used to do more that Bob, and I'm not <laughs> trying to like throw you under the bus or anything, but that I used to do a lot more that I try not to do now is to create this like binary between thoughts and feelings and that skeptics and scouts are good at thinking mm. and that... Um, you know, that other people are good at feeling and that those things aren't actually two sides of a similar coin and they don't both inform us. Just this idea that in order to be a good skeptic, you have to only think uh-huh. and never feel seems to me a little bit like oversimplified. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I uh, I have also found myself pushing back against what feels like a false binary or, or just like the wrong way to carve up, carve up the world. Like, I'll tell you what emotions seem like to me and you can tell me if it matches your your perception of things. Um, But it it seems to me that emotions can, they can be clues to you that there's some, there's some information you weren't consciously paying attention to. And your, your emotion is kind of a signal that Mm -hmm. there's more there that you haven't, you you know, you haven't really brought to conscious awareness. Right. You haven't unpacked or processed or whatever. And that it's almost like this Kahneman's like, you know, first and level thinking fast and thinking slow. What we often talk about when people start to have these arguments about free will and about our brains making decisions before we're consciously aware of them, that there's a lot in our feelings. I think you can go really wooey with it and start calling that you know, intuition and start saying that you have like, you know, that these like a lot of kind of psychics want to then say, oh, I'm just like trusting my intuition. But ultimately, you can't be devoid of feeling. And I think that to have a goal to be devoid of feeling and to only think is actually not a healthy goal. Right. Your feelings are part of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I would say, and it sounds like this is what you're saying, too. I would say that the feeling should sort of raise a hypothesis to conscious awareness. Like if I notice that I'm feeling, I don't know, anger towards someone or unease in a situation or something, then that might that might trigger the realization like, oh, I wonder if, you know, there's something sketchy about what this person's doing that I wasn't consciously noticing. That's like a promising hypothesis that Mm -hmm. now I'm going to think about consciously. Um, or, you know, if I feel angry at someone that might, that, that suggests the hypothesis that maybe they wronged me, but not necessarily. I have to like actually think about that. And sometimes they did. And other times, no, I was just feeling, you know, I was feeling insecure. And so I was getting angry at them to try to cover up my own insecurity or something. There's all sorts of things that could be going on, but, but the emotion at least is worth taking seriously to try to investigate what's going on. That's how I see it anyway. Yeah, I think your emotions are fundamental to your thought processes. And Steve, I wonder if you, you know, have anything to contribute in terms of the fact that like your somatic experience is all a part of that. So, you know, something happening in your brain, you've got, uh, you know, neurons firing, you've got certain neurotransmitters that are present. These have bodily implications as well. Your palms are sweaty, your heart's beating, whatever is going on. These are all parts of what it means to exist in the world and what it means to be a thinking human being. 
It's not just like your brain and your thoughts are this like separate entity and everything else is just getting in the way of your good, clean thoughts. Yeah, no, obviously, yeah. But yeah, I tend to look at it as uh, a, you know, breaking it down to intuition versus analytical thinking, right? So mm-hmm. your your intuition is is your gut feeling, how you feel emotionally about it, but also mm-hmm. your, your innate sense, your instinct about what is probably true or what's going on. And that it can be very powerful, but also very misleading, right? So it's good to listen right. to that, but it just presents a hypothesis, as Julia was saying. Mm-hmm. You then have to back it up with analytical thinking, considering all possibilities, including the possibility that you are wrong or that your your, yep. your emotions are about you and not the other person. Right. You know, you're misdirecting mm-hmm. you know, your, your feelings because we do that. We do that an awful lot. You know, that's just part of human psychology as well. So, but yeah, don't just go with your feelings as if they're always correct and valid and not um, misleading in any way, because that's not true. And and on the, the flip side of that, don't think that to be a good skeptic, every single moment of your life no. has to be... A critical, like, I think that's the problem is that sometimes we swing the pendulum so far as skeptics and we realize that, like, we did evolve shortcuts and heuristics that are highly beneficial, but they sometimes right. lead us astray. Mm-hmm. And so we need to know when they're right. leading us astray. But the, we heavily rely on these shortcuts and heuristics. They're what make us functional right. in the world. Yeah, the, the flip side that uh, you touched on a minute ago is, I think, really important to point out that having this kind of false dichotomy in your head between emotion and um, and rationality on the other side, it causes mm-hmm. you to not only feel like you're not allowed to be emotional, but also to think that because you don't, uh, because you're not consciously emotional, you are therefore rational and reasonable and objective. And, right. and that and is that very is much dangerous. not the case. I tell this, um, <laughs> I tell this anecdote in my book of... Um, I spend way too much time on Reddit, uh, and so a number of the anecdotes in my book are from Ditto, girlfriend. I met on Reddit. <laughs> um, but uh, but so okay, one of my guilty pleasures on Reddit is the forum. Um, Am I the? A- yes. Which have that's an heard? awesome one. That's an yeah. awesome one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, you are. And so okay, usually I'd, I'd say at least upwards of seventy five percent of the time, the the people are judged to be not the. A- Oh, let me just back up. For those of your listeners who actually are productive members of society and don't spend their evenings <laughs> browsing Reddit. Um, so this forum is called Am I the And basically people come on and they describe some, you know, events, like some conflict in their life. And uh, and then they ask for the judgment of the community. Like, was I the in that situation? Or like, was my mother-in-law or was my husband or whatever? Uh, and, and people comment and the votes are kind of tallied. And so usually I'd say upwards of 75% of the time, the, the poster is judged to be not the which is unsurprising because usually people come looking for validation when they feel like someone else was mean to them. <laughs> uh, but, but there is a substantial minority of the time when the community is like, no, you were the in that situation. So in one of those cases, the poster said, okay, look, I have this girlfriend She's really great. I want her to move in with me, but she has a cat and I don't really like cats. I think they're annoying. And so I asked her to give her cat away uh, before she moves in with me and she won't do it. Uh, And yet I explained my logic in a perfectly rational and calm way, but she's, she's being completely unreasonable. Um, You're right. Cause she has feelings. (laughs) Love it's getting in the way. Well, I mean, specifically what I was, what I thought was so interesting about that anecdote or like just so stark it's like a common thing that was especially stark in that anecdote was that he thought because he was explaining himself calmly and 
in his view, rationally, by which, you know, he just means like, my arguments seemed rational to me. <laughs> um, like, he felt, right. <laughs> he felt that he was sort of almost by definition being, he was rational, his position was rational. Um, but in fact, you know, it wasn't. He just had this preference. And to most people, that that's not a reasonable pre- preference. Like, you can't just ask someone to give away their pet because you find it annoying. Um, it wasn't It wasn't like an allergy. He just didn't like cats. And so anyway, I think that was kind of a case in point of how feeling calm and feeling like your argument makes sense to you is not necessarily proof that you are actually being rational and, and in the right. Um, but it can kind of feel that way if you're used to thinking of, you know, emotion equals irrational and lack of emotion equals rational. Right. And sometimes I think it actually shows a lack of empathy. I mean, there was a great meme and I read it once on air, but it was ages ago. So I'm going to completely butcher it trying to remember it about the fact that like, if you're in an argument with somebody in which they have a personal investment, and you're the one who's sitting there and you're being calm, it doesn't mean you're a more rational thinker. Maybe it means that you don't have as much at stake. And I think we see this a lot when we're talking about things like generational Uh trauma, when we're talking about things like race relations, and you see people saying, well, well, you know, but I'm being the adult right. here and I'm being the rational person in the room. It's like, or maybe you just have the privilege for this to not f- induce any sort of triggered yeah. trauma or feelings. You know, that's actually something that I've changed my mind about in the last, I don't know, three to five years or something, um, which is that when, mm. I, when I'm deciding kind of, is this person like online worth like listening to seriously and engaging with. And I don't think everyone is like some people are just being trolls. Some people are just completely ill-informed and are, you know, you're not going to learn anything productive from them. So you do have to make these judgment calls about who is worth, you know, really listening to and talking to. Um, And I, I I came to, I came to think that my criteria for, you know, who is arguing in good faith, my criteria were just too stringent. Um, And one of the ways in which they Mm -hmm. were too stringent was that, if someone like got angry or seemed emotional, I felt like they were not they were not trying to argue in good faith, and so I would often ignore them. So part of what changed my mind was arguments like the one you just made that like, well, it's harder to to you know not be emotional if you are have more at stake. And also, it was just noticing the empirical pattern that actually there are a bunch of examples I've come across of people who argued emotionally and I, you know, realized or, you know, later came to realize, oh, I think they actually had a point or, or the argument they were, they were trying to make that has merit, um, even if I kind of dismissed them at the time. And so I just came to conclude that my rule was wrong. Like I was just empirically wrong that emotion was a sign of, you know, someone who wasn't worth listening to. I love that. I mean, I'm seeing it right now with a lot of my friends. I have my Muslim friends and then I have my, my basically Israeli friends and they're all exhausted by the internet right now. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Alienated and isolated. Right. And, and it's easy for those who you see all the memes that oversimplify the problem and that, you know, try and drill it down to the most binary um, thing that you can. And and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, wow, I if I were to just give my two cents, what a privileged position to be in to say, oh, I'm dispassionately looking because I'm an outsider. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have skin in that game the way that people who live there, the p- way that people have seen what it's like, have skin in the game. And I think, you know, sitting back and listening to those people and to their emotional expressions is sometimes 
an, a skeptical yeah, thing it's also, to do. It's common to misinterpret passion for being irrational. Mm -hmm. And that gets used Mm -hmm. deliberately in some cases against skeptics or just scientists or people trying to be reasonable. That's what trolling often is. You say things that are so like ridiculously absurd that it makes the other side be like, what the hell are you talking about? They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. You're, getting right. all, you know, you're getting all irrational now. It's like, no, you're just blowing my mind. Right. like, what a jerk you are. <laughs> right. You know? yeah. Steve, you said that with a little mob sound in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julia, yeah. I, I, want, I want you to tell me a little bit more about what you cover in the book. Yeah. Uh, so the, it covers a lot of ground. Part of the goal of the book is just to go through a bunch of examples of what scout mindset looks like in different domains and contexts. And so I cover professional examples of, you know, people in business situations, like, I don't know, everyday business situations, like if you're a manager of a team, and you, you, you like have to force yourself to seek out bad news about what's happening in your team that you might not be aware of and make yourself genuinely the kind of person who is who wants to hear the truth so that other people are willing to give it to you. Um, so not getting defensive when you, you know, hear bad news or criticism. And, you know, thinking through really tough things that we're tempted to rationalize about, like, oh, do I really have to, you know, fire that person? Or do I really have to have that difficult conversation with my partner? Um, or can I like put it off indefinitely? <laughs> um, put it off. Uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of business or personal situations um, that I cover, and also political examples. Um, I uh, There's a number of thought experiments that I bring up to kind of help make yourself more aware of when you might be in soldier mindset on political topics, um, like when you're uh, when you're holding the other side, the other political side to a standard that you wouldn't hold your own side to, things like that. Um, and then I also try to debunk what I see as some common myths about scout and soldier mindset. So, for example, one of the myths, uh, in my view, is that if you um, is that a downside of being a scout um, of you know trying to see things realistically and have well calibrated probabilities, so not being one hundred percent certain about everything because you can't be. That a downside of that is that people will see you as weak. You know, if you if you say you're you know less than one hundred percent certain, then that's going to make you seem wishy washy. People aren't going to want to look up to you or follow you, etc. Um, and I think I actually used to assume I used to think that was true. I just kind of accepted it, this common wisdom. And then I did a bunch of research and looked at a bunch of examples uh, for my book and came to f- believe actually that's this this concern is very overblown. There's actually a bunch of successful uh, entrepreneurs and leaders in other capacities who frequently express uncertainty about their companies or their projects, um, and and they get away with it just fine. Uh, and so I kind of explore where did this myth come from, and how do you how do you kind of have your cake needed too? How do you express uncertainty without seeming weak? So yeah, and I, I debunk those myths in part because I think they're a common barrier keeping people from being as scout-like as they otherwise would want to be because they feel like, oh, I, well, I don't want to seem unconfident or, oh, I don't want to uh, be unhappy or, oh, I don't want to lose my motivation. These are some other examples of, of hesitations people have about trying to see the world in an intellectually honest way. And so part of my goal in debunking these myths is to make people feel more free to try to see things truthfully and realistically. All right. Well, Julia, uh, it was very nice talking with you. The Scout Mindset, available at booksellers everywhere, I'm sure. Thanks, guys. And congratulations on your first book. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been uh, so great to come back on the show. Uh, This was a pleasure. It's time for Science or Fiction. 
Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake, and there's a theme this week, and the theme is language. This should be fun. Three things about language. What do you know about language, Jay? I know more than three things about language. That's good. good. Let's hope they're the same three. Good. Yeah, I hope I know them. So your odds are, the odds are in your favor. Here we go. That might not actually work out that way, but here we go. All right. Number one, there are over 2,000 known artificial or constructed languages. All right. Number two, nearly 30% of English words are of French origin. And item number three, a language or dialect goes extinct every two weeks. Jay, go first. There are over 2,000 known artificial or constructed languages. I mean, yes, because, you know, science fiction, uh, fandom, all that stuff. Why not? I can think of a lot, a lot of, uh, of constructed languages that I know exist. I mean, 2,000 is a, is a lot. But, you know, it doesn't say – when you say artificial and constructed, I mean, there could be – are you including computer languages? You know, there, there's – a lot of languages. So I think that one is science. Nearly 30% of English words are of French origin. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, I don't know. 30% seems kind of high. You know, I got to go back to, you know, French is a romance language. And I believe, you know, what is the root of romance languages other than Latin? French. I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't sound accurate to me for some reason. The last one, a language or dialect goes extinct every two weeks. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's true too. You know, as generations die off and there's a lot, you know, tons and tons and tons of countries out there that have all these different, you know, little dialects where not that many people are left. So, okay. So I am going to finalize my guess here and say that the one about nearly 30% of English words are from French. Um, I think it's more German, to be honest with you, but that is the fiction. Okay, Bob. Let's see. Yeah, 2,000 known artificial or constructed. Yeah, I could see that. When when I think of computer languages, I mean, there's got to be hundreds just of that. So it's still a lot. The other two, I mean, I've got problems with lots of these, with all three of these. 30% from French, that seems too high. Um, but then the, then the third one where language or dialect going extinct every two weeks you know, 26 a year. Wow, that's a lot too. So I got uh, uh, screw it. I'll go with Jay. 30% okay. French fiction. All right, and Kara. I feel like I've heard that uh, a language goes extinct every two weeks. I, I know I've read up on, you know, languages dying out and how sad, how, how, you know, scary that prospect is. So for me, it's between the other two. I hate to go out on my own, but 2,000 known artificial languages Joined sounds really us. high. To me, like, I don't even know how many actual languages there are. 2,000 sounds crazy high, you guys. Uh, no, I mean, Kara, you know, again, <sighs> if, you, if, if you remember when I said computer languages and Steve didn't say anything, there, there are a ton of computer languages. Yeah, but I still don't. There are hundreds. And there are probably hundreds of literary languages, not thousands. Don't forget science don't fiction. Don't forget Klingon. <laughs> Is my ignorance going to get in my way of this? Because I do think 30% of English words being a French origin sounds right. We have so many French words. We have so many German, Dutch, French, you know, um, other Latin, but Spanish, really not so many in, in English. So we, we more borrow from the French when it comes to the Latin um, roots. So, so, so much of our language is French. 
so much, but I don't know yeah. about the artificial languages. I'm I'm going to go on a limb. Ah! I'm going on a limb. I'm scared. I'm going to say it's the artificial languages. That sounds too high. All right. So you all agree with number three, a language or dialect goes extinct <laughs> every two weeks. You all think that one is science. And that one is science. All right. Wow, man. I mean, all, not all, not all right, now. but yeah. So there's a lot of languages that have very few uh, native speakers, speakers left. To answer your, your uh, implied question there, Kara, how many languages are there mm-hmm. in the world? What do you think the answer is? How many languages, not not including, we'll say not including the artificial ones, how many natural, like, evolved languages? Are I think there? less than 10,000. So there are 2,700 languages and over 7,000 dialects. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so okay. it's about 10,000 if you include languages and dialects. And so this is this was including both, right? Mm-hmm. Language or dialect goes extinct every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, and there's a lot that are that are threatened. So, uh, so that one is science. So let's go back to mm, let's go back to number one. There are over 2,000 known artificial or constructed languages. Jay and Bob think this one is perfectly cromulent. Kara, Kara, you think this one is the fiction. And this one is the fiction. Yes. Kara. Uh, too high? Yeah, it's a, it's more like 200. Yeah. Um, 200? Damn you. Yeah, some sources said 300. I mean, it's hard. To, you have to list them all and find them all. So it's somewhere in like between 200 and 300. Even if you add the computer languages, it's only a, you know, a couple hundred more. It's not, it doesn't get up to 2,000. Klingon is definitely an artificial language or a constructed language. There's obviously, a lot of these are from fiction, but some were created deliberately to be used as a language, like Esperanto, for example. Um, so that includes all of those as well. It's not all literary. But to be okay. considered a language, you have to have a working vocabulary and and syntax and grammar, you know. It can't just it, be words. It can't be like can't clockwork just be faking it. Yeah, you can't be faking it. It's Yeah, yeah it's got to be. And so like Klingon was actually made into a full language. Somebody right. wrote Klingon. It's not just like the three words that you're that you're Kapla. Yeah, getting from the from the uh, from the series, uh, for example, and Tolkien, as you know, like really fleshed yeah. out the languages that he used, and like Navi from yeah. uh, Avatar was was written as a complete and, and functioning language. Even Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, that's Dothraki. actually rare. Like we're listing those because they're the only ones we can think of. Yeah. So, but it's, it's a couple <laughs> yeah. of hundred. Yeah, it's like yeah. two, three hundred. Right. It's interesting. There have been a lot of proposed languages, like over a thousand proposed artificial languages, ah. but most of them were never fully developed. They died mm-hmm. on the vine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know most the, the the languages created to like become an international language or whatever all failed. You know, they just never really get traction. Esperanto was probably the one that got the most traction, but uh, never really took off as like a truly international language, which is what how they were intended. All right, so that means that nearly 30% of English words are of French origin is science, which is... Yeah, yeah. I was surprised at that one. So, Jay, it's interesting that you say, Jay, that you thought that they were mostly Germanic because English is considered a Germanic language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but there's a difference here. So some some linguists defending the designation of English as a Germanic language argue that most of the core vocabulary is Germanic and a lot of the 
technical added words later were French. Hmm. So technical. Yeah, so like the all of our words that deal with ballet, for example, are French. And a lot of the words that we use for electroencephalograms and seizures are French, like grand mal, petite mal, you know. Yeah, and probably um, food too. I bet you a lot of culinary terms. Yeah, are probably French. a lot of culinary yeah. terms. There's a lot of like those more modern terminology. But if you talk about just the core vocabulary, that's more more Germanic. So our English is twenty six percent Germanic. 29, 30% French, 29% Latin, 6% Greek, 6% all other languages, and 4% of words derived from proper names and don't can't be tied to a specific language. So well, what yeah, about you, unique word, you, you, you know, uniquely English words? Because we've got, uh, I remember reading that there's like a million words in the English language more than any other language, and a lot of it's like technical words. English has the most words. English has the most words of any language. But it's partly because it is an amalgam of these other languages. So where do a lot of the French words come from, Cara, do you know? Ooh, I mean, probably some sort of earlier Latin influence, no? Well, that was a good, that was a question is... Like the a lot of French words are romantic and they do mm-hmm. have a Latin origin. So how much is that responsible for the Latin origin words? Of right, it's right. the same with Greek, right? Like when it comes down to it, most things come down to a Greek or Latin ultimate origin, and yes. then it's pie before that. But these are but there there's words that came to us directly from Latin and ones that passed through right. French to get right. to. So those are considered the French ones. So they say a lot of it probably goes back to the Norman invasion of 1066 because that was yeah. Norman French. Yeah, occupation, colonialization. I mean, this is, yeah, you see this time and time and time again. And there's a lot of words you wouldn't think of. Like, everyone knows that garage is French, right? Garage. You guys remember that um, that Simpsons? But do you know that the word joy is French? Joy is French. What was the Simpsons one? You don't remember that, Jay, when he's like, ooh, garage with their fancy garage. And they're like, what do you call it? And he goes, the car hole. The car hole. (laughs) (laughs) But also the percentage depends on how you count words. Like, do you count every version of joy, joyous, joyful, you know, whatever, as separate words? Right, or or just just the first unique. Or just the root root word, yeah. Um, So that's why some some people estimate it more like 40% or whatever, but I thought 30% was the um, consensus assessment. All right. That was a fun one. So uh, Evan is not here, so I came up with a quote. I decided to go back to a classic, a favorite of mine, Thomas Henry Huxley. You guys know who he was, right? Jay, That's remember right. T.H. T. Huxley bulldog. Darwin's bulldog, philosopher, um, a science communicator who took it upon himself to uh, educate the world about Darwin's newfangled theory of evolution. He wrote... What we call rational grounds for our beliefs are often extremely irrational attempts to justify our instincts. Yeah. So I thought that that related well to Julia's Julia, book yeah. and the discussion that we had that everyone thinks they're being rational even when they're just rationalizing their their gut feeling, their intuitions, what they want to believe. So T.H. So yeah. Huxley had that figured out over 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Smart Nothing dude. changes. You know what I mean? That's one of those things you, you, you read you know, about scams from a thousand years ago and, you know, all this stuff. It's all the same stuff. Like all the stuff that we're dealing with now is just versions of scams that are thousands of years old. I mean, yeah. or hundred, at least hundreds of years old. Uh, it's really fascinating. 
Pretty smart for a bulldog. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, man. Anytime, Steve. So we'll see you guys on the Friday live stream. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.